Good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you today. I hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, in, in the Jewel household, we did uh, two Thanksgiving celebrations and my sister's birthday in the last three days, so I'm ready for a couple days of salads. I don't know about any of you, but um, anyway, I'm glad to be able to come and uh, uh, share a message this morning from, from uh, God's Word. Uh, here at CBC, we're kind of in between uh, preaching series right now. We just finished up our first kind of block of 1 Corinthians uh, two weeks ago. And starting next week, we'll do four weeks as an Advent series leading up to Christmas. And then after the new year, we're uh, back into, into 1 Corinthians. Um, but today, we're just kind of uh, doing a standalone message. And uh, I'd like to use the time to talk through a story that I think all of us have learned and heard uh, along the road somewhere, probably most of us in a Sunday school context. And that's the story of uh, David and Goliath from 1 Samuel chapter 17. And, and by the way, since it's a second service and I have some of the Sunday school teachers here, I just want to say I have full respect and admiration for those of you that labor well to teach our kids uh, every week. I am grateful for it. Um, back when I was in college, I remember I came home one summer and I went to our pastor and I said, uh, hey, anything you need help with this summer, you know, while I'm home? And he got a big smile on his face and he said, how would you like to teach middle school boys Sunday school? And uh, we had a great time. There were no broken bones. And we uh, learned a little bit of the Bible too, I think. So anyway, it's a good, uh, good work that, uh, that you're doing for us. Um, but also, I think, good for us to sometimes read those stories again with, with uh, adult eyes. And so I want to do that today with, with the story of David and Goliath. Okay, but before we dive into that, I just want to take a few minutes and do a little bit of kind of historical uh, catch-up of, of where we are in, the, in Israelite history as we come into this, this story. Uh, in fact, we're just going to do kind of 300 years here in, in five minutes. So uh, many of you know that uh, Israel at one point in their history were slaves in Egypt. And, and the Lord in the book of Exodus, the Lord brought them out of Egypt, brought them to this new land, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And this is going to be their home. Uh, but that land, the land of Canaan, it was not uninhabited when they showed up. There were many people groups there, including the Philistines who are in today's story. Uh, and so for the first couple hundred years that they lived there, there was just constant strife between Israel and, and her neighbors. And the Lord, during that time, he appointed a group of judges to help to rule over Israel, to help them to fight their battles, and to help them to kind of, kind of uh, preserve their, their territory. And, um, you know, there, there was an idea behind this, this uh, concept of having judges. The, the idea was that, you know, God was supposed to be their king. They were a nation that belonged to Yahweh. Yahweh was their king. And so these judges were just sort of these temporary rulers set up to, to take care of, care of people. Um, and if you want to go read the book of Judges, you can kind of see how that pans out. Uh, some of those judges did great things. They won some battles. But there's definitely a trajectory. As, as you read through the book of Judges, uh, there's definitely a pattern of things are just kind of getting worse and worse and worse. Like, like this system is not somehow really working. In fact, you get to the last couple of book of Judges, like those are chapters we do not talk about in Sunday school. I mean, those are unpleasant, you know, di discomforting chapters about things that are happening in the nation of Israel. Uh, just every level of, you know, moral rot and decay and strife between the, the um, uh, tribes and lawlessness and all of that. In fact, the book of Judges ends, the very last verse in the book of Judges. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's not a very optimistic place that the book ends. All right, so that's Judges. And then, uh, then you get into 1 Samuel, which is where, where we're going to be studying from today. And um, uh, 
1 Samuel is centered around this character of Samuel, who is a prophet and a priest, and he also kind of played this role of judge. He would also help to lead the people, would lead them out into battle, especially in the early chapters of the book. Um, and uh, he helped to kind of organize the tribes and, and all that. And around about chapter 8 or so, 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel decides it's time to start collecting Social Security. Uh, so he, he hands over the job of ruling Israel to his two sons. Um, but they are kind of corrupt and dishonest, and that does not go well. So the people of Israel then come back to Samuel, and they say, hey, we, we are done with this whole system of judges. Just, just give us a king. You know, make, make us like the other nations. Uh, in fact, here's what they say uh, exactly to him. This is 1 Samuel 8, 19 and 20. It says, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. We, then we will be like all the other nations, with the king to lead us and go out before us to fight our battles. Now, I just want you to hear there, in that, in that statement, in their desire for a king, there are two motivations they articulated there. Number one, they want to be like the other nations. And number two, they want somebody to fight their battles. That's what they're looking for in a king. All right? Keep that in your head. Uh, Samuel gives in. I mean, he knows this is not going to maybe end well, but he says, all right, the Lord's going to give you a king. So the Lord leads this man named Saul to Samuel. Samuel anoints him as king. And Saul, uh, he looks the part. He's a head taller than everybody else. People are like, yeah, I can see this guy's a king. You know, we can get behind him. And then chapters 9 through about 15 of 1 Samuel talk through those early days of Saul's kingship. And much like the judges, uh, Saul has some successes. He wins some battles. He does some good things. But he also displeases the Lord greatly in a couple different ways. And so around about chapter 15, uh, God sends Samuel to Saul again and says, hey, this, your kingship, your throne... This thing is over. Your, your sons are not going to inherit the kingdom of Israel. I'm going to give the kingdom to somebody else. Somebody's going to follow me better than you're following me. And in the very next chapter, chapter 16, God then sends Samuel to the town of Bethlehem, to this family of Jesse, and says one of the sons of Jesse is going to be the next king of Israel. Samuel has to go there in secret, by the way. He has to go kind of under a pretense of wanting to offer a sacrifice because he knows that if Saul finds out He's going to anoint a new king. Saul's going to kill him. So Samuel shows up at Jesse's house, and the first, uh, first son that he sees is Jesse's oldest son. Uh, that's Eliab. And, Saul, and Samuel sees Eliab and is like, yes, yes, this guy is clearly the king. Right? He also is from central casting. He's tall. He's rugged. He's handsome. Like, clearly, this guy is the next king. But God says no. In fact, uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, God says, do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, I rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. And then Samuel proceeds to go through all seven of Jesse's oldest sons, and God rejects every single one of them as king. Then finally Samuel's like, you know, isn't there anybody left? And Jesse says, oh yeah, there's like the shepherd boy out in the field kind of thing. And so they bring in David, and there in front of his brothers... Samuel pours the oil over him, anoints David, the next king of Israel. So that's the scene as we now come to today's passage in 1 Samuel 17. Saul is still the king, okay? But he knows his days are numbered. He's been told that he's not going to be king forever. And out there in the Judean hills, this teenage shepherd boy has just been secretly anointed as the new king. And in the midst of all of this, the Philistines, the Israel's old nemesis, they've reared their heads again. 
And we're going to see the conflict between those two countries here. So if you haven't done so already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I did not manage this week to get, uh, get slides for you, so you're going to have to read it old-fashioned out of your Bibles. If you'd like to uh, grab a pew Bible in front of you or on the chair in front of you, it's page number 239. So 1 Samuel 17, page 239 in your sanctuary Bible. It's a long passage today. So we're going to read it, from, read it in some bits, and I think I'll just have you uh, uh, stay seated because we're going to come back to it a few times. But let me start here. I'll read the first uh, 11 verses to get going. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Allah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a Javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for a battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. Okay, if you are an Israelite soldier, Goliath is a nightmare. Let me translate a few of these measurements for you. Goliath is over nine feet tall. His bronze coat it weighs 120 pounds. And just the tip of his spear is 15 pounds of solid iron. Now, I'm going to spare you the history lesson about bronze and iron technology development uh, in this time period. But the point, the point of all this detailed description in this text about his armor and his javelin and his spear is trying to say that not only was he huge and terrifying, but he is also outfitted with the latest and greatest weapons of war. He is a nine-foot-tall high-tech killing machine, this Goliath. And he just comes out mocking the Israelites, right? He's like, hey, let's just do this the easy way. No reason for everybody to die in the battlefield. Just send me out your best man. We'll just, we'll settle this mano a mano. It's a serious offer, but it's also meant to be kind of insulting, right? And ridiculous. Like, the Israelites have nobody that can stand up to this guy. Uh, they know that. By the way, do you notice how Goliath he puts to the lie the two things that Israel said they wanted out of a king. Remember? Number one, they wanted to be like the other nations. Well, they've got nobody like Goliath. Not even close. They are not like the Philistines. And number two, they want uh, a king to lead them out in battle. Well, where's Saul? They don't have a king to lead them out in battle. Verse 11 says Saul was dismayed and afraid, just like everybody else. 
In fact, I think just coming a very few verses after chapter 16, where we see David anointed and the kingdom he taken away from Saul, uh, I think that uh, this passage is intentionally highlighting uh, Saul's failure. It's, it's obvious who should come out and fight Goliath. It's the king. The king should go out there and fight the battle on behalf of his people. That's like literally his job. That, that is literally the thing that they hired him to do. So by refusing to fight Goliath, Saul, he's, he's shirking his duty. He wants to retain that title of king. He wants to be the king, but he doesn't want to do any of the work of a king. That's not a very encouraging start to the story for the Israelites. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Now David was a son of an Epaphrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, uh, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadad, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistines came forward and took uh, for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, uh, "Take for your brothers an epa of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them." Now Saul and they and all of the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the hosts were going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold the champion the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up and out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done to the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. All right, now this section, it's introducing David to the story, but at this point, he's just like the messenger boy. There's no reference here yet to his anointing as king. He's just here to deliver food to his brothers, bring news back home. But when he shows up and he sees the armies lining up for battle, he can't believe what's going on. He, he's like, when he hears Goliath, in his mind, he's saying, why are we putting up with this guy? Who does he think he is? And the passage is contrasting David's response with that of the, of the soldiers. Right? You see their response there? They are just leaderless. They are afraid. They are cowering daily in front of Goliath. This challenge has been going on for 40 days, it says, uh, morning and night. Eighty times Goliath has come out and has challenged an Israelite to come and fight him. And despite all these promises of riches and freedom and power for whoever will kill Goliath, not a single one of them has stepped up. And why not? I mean, it's, it's obvious, right? Uh, they don't think they can do it. They don't have any faith that they can kill this giant. I mean, what is the point of all those rewards 
if the task is impossible. So instead, they just sit there day after day, listening to these words of condemnation, of mocking, and they're just being reminded over and over again of their own impotence against this guy who's got a 120-pound bronze shirt. All right, so against that backdrop, it really makes no sense that this shepherd boy is going around and asking people, hey, how do I sign up to fight the giant man, right? Like, like what are you going to do, David? Um, none of these seasoned fighters are willing to go take him on. Like, you're going to do it? I mean, you know, give me a break, right? And that skepticism, it even extends to the people that know David best. Look at this next set of verses, starting in verse 28. It says, Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard what he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption, the evil of your heart. You come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. All right. What is the deal, you guys, with older brothers in the Bible? Have you, have you ever noticed this? I mean, like, they just do not get it. They, they are always so respectable and upright and just flat wrong about so much. Uh, Eliab here uh, really reminds me of an older brother that we run across in the New Testament, in the story of the prodigal son. We don't have time to go read that now, but you can look it up in Luke 15 if you want to later. Uh, Eliab has all the same kind of arrogance, sense of entitlement as that other older brother in, in Luke. Eliab, he seems to feel like he's really earned his place in the family. You know, like maybe that horn of oil from Samuel should have been poured on his head instead of David's. You can really kind of sense that Eliab feels like it is ridiculous that the kingdom of Israel is going to be handed over to uh, a shepherd boy and one who tends so few sheep at that, right? Eliab really can't envision any good motives for David being here or for asking about Goliath, right? Surely he's just here for the show. He's willing to watch his brothers fight and bleed and die just for his own amusement. Eliab has no compassion. He has no imagination to see his brother as anything other than this annoying kid who's just acting bigger than his britches. All right, well, despite all that, word somehow reaches Saul that David has been asking about Goliath. So Saul sends for David. Pick it back up in verse 31. It says, When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. 
And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these. I have not tested them. So David put them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. All right, so we are now on the precipice of this most unlikely wartime face-off, maybe in the history of mankind. We have the secret and future teenage king of Israel walking out to face this giant who has put his hope in his bronze and his iron. There's a cast of characters all around David in this story. None of them have any faith. None of them have any hope. All of them are drowning in their own worry, their own fear, their own arrogance, their own cowardice. David is the only one who's ready to fight the enemy and rescue his people. And why? Because the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. All right, you know how the story ends, but let's read it anyway. Verse 41. It says, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the, of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put, in his, uh, put his hand in his bag, and he took out a stone, and he slung it, and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone, the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. All right, so there you have it. It is surely one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Uh, I guess it's famous because it's very dramatic. It has a happy ending. Uh, and also there is an easy moral to the story, isn't there? David trusts in God. God uses him to defeat the undefeatable giant. That also makes for a pretty easy application to our own lives, doesn't it? Um, you know, when I've heard it preached, uh, it's usually along the lines of, sort of encouraging us to have faith like David had, uh, to face the giants in our lives, whatever they might be. And if we have courage and faith like David, God can give us victory like he gave David. And, you know, I want to say that uh, at one level, there is nothing wrong with that interpretation or that way of thinking through the passage. That, that, that is clearly uh, part of what this passage is teaching. Uh, many other passages of Scripture also that really encourage us. If we trust in God through difficult circumstances, God will indeed see us through will um, uh, do great things in our lives if we have faith in him, right? That is, that is all true. Uh, but today, I'd also like to encourage us to maybe ask a different question um, as we think about how this story pertains to us. Uh, and it's this. Uh, what if we are not David? What if the main point of the story is not for us to identify with David? 
it's, it's really easy to do, I mean, it's subconscious almost, to sort of slot ourselves into the hero role in the story and then sort of build our interpretation of the passage around that perspective. Like, David's the good guy. Of, of course, I want to be like David. As I said, that's not wrong, but I think there's also another way to look at this story and, and lots of others like it in the Bible. Uh, I think there's a better and a very simple way that we can think through these stories that really, from my perspective, opens up the Bible in, in some new and, and fresh and important ways for us. And it's really just to do this. Uh, instead of first reading the story and trying to find ourselves in the story, trying to apply it first to our lives, instead, uh, read the story and try to find Jesus in the story. Okay? Find Jesus in the story. Now, maybe that sounds like a funny thing to say. We are reading a story, after all, that comes a thousand years before Jesus is going to be born. But here at CBC, we understand that the whole story of the Bible points to Jesus. The, uh, that even as we read the Old Testament stories, we should be looking for how God is weaving together a picture of his Messiah, uh, of how God's going to redeem his people, how God's going to inaugurate his kingdom. All of that is through the Old Testament. All right, you, you guys, God did not just give us this uh, three quarters of your Bible that is the Old Testament. This is not just to make your read through the Bible in a year plan a challenge. All right, that, that is not the goal here. Uh, instead, God is trying to help us to understand something about how he plans to redeem humanity through history. So I just think it's a good practice uh, before we apply the passage to our lives and put ourselves in the story. It's just a good idea to say, okay, what does this passage say about Jesus? And I think David and Goliath in particular is a great one to sort of contemplate or think through in that way um, because the story just really radiates, it really glows with, with parallels to Jesus. Uh, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, so first, like David, uh, Jesus is going to be an unlikely hero in the New Testament, isn't he? Uh, he is going to look nothing like people expect a king to look like. That's what we're going to study all through the next uh, Advent here leading up to Christmas. He's going to be a secret king. He's going to be born in the most humble circumstances. He's going to be hidden from powers that want to kill him. Just like David refuses Saul's armor, Jesus is going to repeatedly refuse to pick up the weapons of the world to defeat Israel's enemies and inaugurate or usher in a political kingdom that his followers want him to create. And just like David, Jesus is going to relentlessly pursue a singular purpose of saving his people, not from a giant, but instead from their sins. See, we, we read the story and we want to know, hey, you know, if David slayed Goliath, does that mean that God can get me out of the debt that I'm in, you know, fix my relationship, help me find a job that's meaningful. And, you know, I, I think God cares about those things. I think those things are important to God in your life. Um, but I also want to encourage us, maybe we shouldn't start there when we read the passage. Instead, let's start by meditating first on the fact that this story about this teenage boy slaying a nine-foot-tall, bloodthirsty Philistine, it is some kind of a a shadow, it's some kind of a, a whisper, a, a foretaste about the story of the whole book, which is that through Jesus, God is in the process of crushing all the evil and hate and sin and oppression that saturates our world. That God is in the business, through Jesus, God is in the business of reconciling all things to himself in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
And he is making peace with us through the most unlikely of weapons, the blood of his cross. I think we can see the story of David um, as a way of training us, of, of, of teaching us to see that God uses the small, the weak, the unlikely things to overturn the powerful, the arrogant, the corrupt. I think it's trying to train us so that when we come to the New Testament and we read the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, that that story should not feel like a shock. It should feel like a culmination. That was one of Jesus' complaints uh, about the Pharisees, if you remember. From John chapter 5, Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In other words, these stories have a point. They're not just history lessons. They're not just philosophical musings or something. Uh, They are pointing to Jesus. And so our hearts are going to be more in concert with the text, with with the story of the Bible, if we don't first try to locate ourselves in the story, but instead we try to locate Jesus in the story first. And it's just true in so many places in the Old Testament. I'll just do one one, uh, other example. Uh, Think, for example, about when Abraham, uh, Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him. That's Genesis 22. Uh, that's a difficult story to read, and it maybe prompts a lot of natural questions in our minds, like, why would God do that, right? Is that cruel of God to demand a child's sacrifice? Like, what is going on there? And, and if you wrestle with those questions, uh, I don't want to wave them off. It is really good to interrogate, to think through those, those issues. But I would just say, don't let those kinds of questions block you from seeing that that story, just like David and Goliath, it's first and foremost a story about Jesus. It's about how God is going to provide a way out, a way of salvation, about how God is the one who rescues us in Jesus when all hope is lost. And by the way, if your heart sort of pricks for Abraham as he's taking his son off to kill him, if you kind of, you know, are weeping a little bit inside, maybe, maybe as a parent yourself, as, as that story is unfolding, um, well, Maybe that helps us to understand a little better our Heavenly Father, right, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The story is there for that reason, too. Helps us to understand the enormity of God's sacrifice for us. I I am not saying that we should read these stories only as allegory, okay? These stories in the Old Testament, they are real stories about real people. They have their own historical and literary context. It's important that we read them uh, that way, too but they are also pieces of a bigger, a bigger picture, a bigger puzzle. And if we want to see that bigger picture, then we, also, we have to do the work of putting the pieces together, which means we have to see the theme. We have to see uh, how God is showing us glimpses of Jesus and all of that. All right, so my encouragement to you is find Jesus in the story. Now, it is possible to go over, overboard with this. It, it is possible to uh, be trying to extract sort of nuances of meaning maybe from places that they don't belong. Um, For that reason, it's important to read Scripture in the context of the rest of the Bible. It's important to read Scripture together with other believers so we can sort of check ourselves on that. Uh, But what I want to say today is it is a good, it is a healthy habit to get out of the mode of when you read a passage of the Bible to first ask, how does this passage apply to my life? Instead, start with, what does this passage show me about Jesus? That, I think, is how we avoid this error of the Pharisees. Who, who knew a lot, but understood very little, and they did not recognize the Messiah when he came. That is an error we should avoid at all costs as Christians. Okay, um, 
I think there's also another reason why it's important to sort of correctly locate Jesus in the story. Uh, And that's because I think if we do that, then that second piece of applying it to our own lives, I think that actually gets easier and better and is more fruitful, excuse me, if we put Jesus in there first. Uh, The Bible, of course, does have a great deal to say to us as individuals, uh, corporately as believers, uh, and we should be, you know, thoughtfully reflecting on on those lessons too. Um, But here's maybe uh, how it helps to locate Jesus. Let's think again about David and Goliath. If I take myself out of the hero's chair, uh, if I say, you know what, maybe I'm not always David, maybe that's not always my role, Um, then that maybe opens me up to look at the rest of the passage and say, hey, do I fit in somewhere else here a little bit better? And that picture might not be as flattering, um, but maybe that's a good and necessary work in our hearts sometimes. Uh, For example, uh, in this story, maybe some of us are living like Saul. Maybe we have some kind of position of influence, authority in our homes or our workplaces or a church, Uh, but maybe we're not really dedicated to doing the work of those positions. Maybe we just want the title of dad or husband or wife or middle manager or whatever it is, but we're not really taking any initiative to live out those roles, to do the things that God's put in front of us. We're sitting around waiting for somebody else to show up and solve our problems, Uh, and actually God just wants us to take a step, to step up and just do the thing that's right in front of us, to lead better in our homes, to serve, encourage each other here at church. If I see myself only as David in the story, I'm never going to be challenged to see myself maybe as Saul. And you can actually do this kind of self-reflection with anybody else in this story. Uh, Maybe some of us need to uh, see that we're living life like Eliab, David's older brother. And maybe we've become convinced somehow of our own intellectual or spiritual superiority, like, you know, hey, I I know a lot of Bible verses. Um, I've got this thing figured out. And because of that, maybe we've sort of lost the vision to see that God uses the small, the weak, the humble things uh, in the world to accomplish his purpose. Uh, If we're not careful, we can even, like Eliab, we can even start to scorn or mock what God's doing because that's not how we would do it. And, you know, if we can only imagine the kingdom of God advancing when we're in charge, then we're at risk of becoming an older brother. And they are not the good guys in the Bible. How about the Israelite soldiers? Right? Remember, they just wanted a king. They just wanted to be like the other nations. And we too are tempted towards this, aren't we? Right? To allow our patterns of speech or thought or our social media behavior or our spending habits. It is easy to let those things be formed by, formed and shaped by kind of how everybody around us are doing those things. It is really easy to fall into that. It's easy for me to slip into kind of thoughtless criticism, sarcasm of ideas or people, because that's just kind of, you know, the way people do things. Um, God has not called us to be like everybody else, though. God has not called us to be like that. He's called us to imitate his son. He's called us to love those people who are different from us or with whom we disagree or whatever the case might be. We're not supposed to be like an Israelite soldier, just trying to be like everybody else. Uh, last, and um, you know, I really pray this is not the case for any of us, but I think if we read the story of David and Goliath, we also have to be willing to prayerfully ask if um, maybe we've ever been the Goliath in somebody's life. Maybe we've at some point used a position of power, physical strength, 
some kind of superiority to belittle or harass or abuse, oppress somebody. Maybe we put our trust mostly in our bronze and iron, whatever those things might be. If that's ever been you or if that's you today, then this story has a really simple message. Uh, David is coming. And I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but the message of this story is that God cares about, he loves his people, he is going to deliver them. He also has a special care and concern, as we can read through many pages of the Bible, for the vulnerable, the weak, those that lack resources, those that lack protection in society. Wow, if we are ever opposed to that in some way, we better watch out. We better repent. We better turn from that. That's also part of the story of David and Goliath. We're not going to see that if we only see ourselves as David. For me, it's, it's about trying to learn to adopt kind of like a, a posture of humility towards the text. Um, let's think about a different story. There's a story in Ezekiel 37 about the prophet Ezekiel going out to this valley filled with dry bones. And Ezekiel prophesies, and these bones come to life, and they get flesh put on them, and a mighty army is raised up. As we read that story, we can choose to see ourselves as Ezekiel in that story, or we can choose to see ourselves as a bag of dry bones that has no hope of becoming alive unless the Spirit of God breathes life into us, puts flesh on our spiritual bones, right? Uh, makes us into the people that he wants us to be. It's not to say we're never going to have an Ezekiel moment in our lives, right? God does work through his people. God does listen to our prayers. God does do incredible things uh, uh, in our lives, and we shouldn't you know, downplay that. But it's also important as we read those stories. Remember, it's Jesus that saved us. It's Jesus that gave us life. It's Jesus that put that flesh on our bones. It's Jesus that raised us up to do his work. That's the story of the Valley of Dry Bones. It's looking ahead to Jesus. It's looking ahead to the work that he's going to do in us. So when we come to, the, uh, come to a text, whether it's David and Goliath or anything else, um, let's, let's work first to find Jesus in the story, and let's try to find ourselves second after that. Okay, as we get close to the end here, um, I just kind of want to maybe take a minute to address maybe one possible complaint or, or pushback that I can imagine uh, might be in your mind. Uh, can imagine some of you might be thinking something along the lines of, you know, uh, Matt, I see your point, uh, you know, I get it, but, you know, I, I do have some pretty big giants in my life right now. Uh, you know, I really could have used maybe just some encouragement from the story of David and Goliath today. Like, you're telling me not to think about myself as David, but then all these other characters in the story, they're all kind of like bad guys. You know, they all got some major problems. And so it just feels a little depressing. Like, you know, as Christians, isn't it true that in Christ we're new creations? The old is gone, the new has come. Shouldn't we celebrate that in these stories? I mean, where's the encouragement for somebody who's just having a hard time with life? And, and I want to say I really hear that. And so let me offer maybe, maybe two thoughts that, that might be helpful. Uh, number one. We are indeed new creations in Christ. The important bit are those two words, in Christ. In other words, if we want to understand and appreciate and be encouraged by the new life that we have in Jesus, the way we do that is by letting our hearts and our minds marinate in the person of Jesus and understanding Jesus better, understanding his person, his character, his nature, what he's done for us. As we understand him better, then we will understand better who we are in him. Right? That, that is the path towards doing that. Uh, indeed, the Christian life should not be 
50 or 70 or 80 years of walking around with our heads hung down saying, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so wretched, I'm, I'm such a terrible person. We do have new life in him, and that is glorious and that is worth celebrating. But we celebrate it by centering Jesus, by centering his work in us and in our lives, making him the object of our devotion. That, I, I really believe, that is the path towards confidence and joy and peace in, in our lives as Christians. Okay, so that's kind of one response. And then second, uh, I, would, I would also just offer to you that actually um, it's not that much fun to be David sometimes. Uh, if, if you're the one that has to kill the giants, if you're the one that has to kind of, uh, everyone's well-being depends on you, uh, that's actually pretty stressful. And, you know, we're going to do that poorly sometimes. Um, We've got all these difficult things in our lives, and, and absolutely there's sometimes you know, very practical steps we should take to help, help work those things out. Um, but actually, I think the better path is to give those hard things to Jesus. Just let, let him be David in your life. Do, do, what it, do what you can do, as far as it depends on you, right, to, to alleviate those things, but then give it to him. Trust in him to work out those things in your life in his timing, in his way. That, that also, I think, is the better path to peace to not be constantly anxious uh, about, about these hard things in our lives. I have tried being David in my own life. Let me tell you, many times uh, I have tried to, to uh, uh, work out my own problems, to, to make sure that I was the one taking care of things. And boy, it just leads to frustration, leads to anxiety, leads to burnout. There, there's a better way. The better way is to give it to Jesus. All right. Uh, then last, I do just want to loop fully back to kind of where we started and say, you know, that, that, that original uh, interpretation or, or way of thinking about this passage, it, it is not wrong. It's, it is good to know that, hey, if we trust in God, uh, he will do his work in us. And it's important that we know that and believe it. Uh, it's important that we put it in our hearts. Um, but as we try to live out those things, let's put Jesus where he belongs. Let's put him at the center of the story and then find our role in it after that. Okay, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, I'm grateful for this gathered body of believers. And I'm grateful, Father, that we do have a community here that uh, seeks you daily, that desires to conform our lives to you and to what you have for us. Uh, Lord, would you help us to do that well? Would you help us to, uh, every day, uh, be, be looking to center you in our lives and even in our Bible study? Uh, would we be seeing your uh, broader picture of what you have for us, Lord? Uh, would, you help, would you please take away from us the, 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 the anxiety, the, the need to be in control of our, of our lives and put you at the center where you belong? Thank you, Father, for it and for the chance to uh, look into it together from your word. In your name, amen.